0: are here in WeWork london for the third of our three-part blockchain special all kinds is happening in the news bitcoin just hit an all-time high we're going to talk today about what is the enterprise ethereum alliance we're going to talk about what is zcash 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 who does it matter to we're going to talk about that and then we're going to get into the news with some of our regulars on with the show Alrighty, so in the room with me, we have the return in Colin Platt. Colin, how are you, sir? I'm doing fantastic. Every time I come, you bring more beers. Yeah, that's the plan, that's the plan. And Colin, just for everyone's benefit, who are you and what do you do? So co-founder of Deep Hactum, we do derivatives clearing solutions using this fancy DLT technology. Ah, oh, fancy indeed. And we have the wonderful
1: Jack Gavigan. Jack, thank you for being with us, sir. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? So I'm the COO of the aforementioned Zcash, and I also have a general background In fintech and banking and open APIs and all that sort of stuff. You've been around the block a couple of times, I see. Yeah, that kind of character. I've I've, I've been doing this for a while.
0: Yeah, that's what we like. And of course, we have the wonderful Alex Batlin with us. Alex, who are you and what do you do, sir?
2: I'm human, and what do I do? I uh, I'm the board member for Enterprise Ethereum Alliance, as well as the technical steering group for for them as well. So fantastic! So we're going to learn a lot about the Enterprise
0: Ethereum Alliance and Zcash today. But I'm interested a little bit in your journeys before we get into that. and I'll start with Jack. Um, how do you go from being somebody that works in banks uh, with fintech to arguably one of the most underground cryptocurrencies um, at one point? Uh, with with some of the best crypto technology that the world's ever seen.
1: How, how did that transition come for you and, and what inspired you to make that move? Well, I, I started off during the dot-com boom working in startups. I was your classic university dropout, didn't have a degree, went to work in this internet industry back in 1996. So, and then when the bubble burst in 2000, I took a three-month contract setting up uh, web servers for Deutsche Bank here in the city. And those three months became six, became twelve, became eventually, you know, seventeen years later, I uh, I I left the, the you know the the banking space to to work with Zcash. But the, the the reason that I I got interested in Zcash specifically is because it solves a problem that everybody faces with blockchain technology so far, which is that for first generation blockchains in order for it to work, an awful lot of information needed to be revealed. And what Zcash does is it solves that problem. And that means that it can be used for a whole bunch of use cases that where the lack of privacy, the lack of confidentiality had rendered it unusable previously.
0: That's really significant. So one of the things I hear from executives quite often when we're doing work at 11FS is, well, I can't use Bitcoin because of the data privacy issue. I can't use blockchains because everybody gets to see all the transaction information. And to hear that somebody's thought about that uh, is is really, really helpful. And uh, Alex, if you could do the same, just tell us a little bit about your your journey with this technology and then a little bit about uh, EEA and and your role there.
2: Sure. Far more boring than that. So I was running for UBS at that point. They... Uh, what we call CTO Research Functions, so working with guys like Forrest and Gartness on technology impact uh, and emerging tech. Uh, and then I invested in a number of big data solutions. Basically, I wrote a bunch of Perl scripts to scrape the, the web and do keyword extraction and then clustering. Why did I do that? Because I wanted to see what was the buzz in the news, uh, but use machines rather than reading Google. And what I started discovering was that uh, there was more and more noise about Bitcoin, altcoins and something else. Uh, I did a bit of data mining and uh, correlated that with Crunchbase, uh, which gave me a dollar value on on the hype. And Bitcoin uh, started coming up higher and higher. So I thought I need to have a look at it. So it's an extremely analytical way forward. And then I pitched internally the idea that we should take a deeper look at this. I pretended to be Columbus because I said, "Yeah, I have no idea what ROI on this is, but what we do need to do is is look at this because it could be the promised land. Who knows?" Uh, and and much to my surprise, I kept my job and managed to open up a level thirty nine lab and 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 explore blockchain in that space. Uh, since then, I joined BNY Mellon, looking at uh, how we effectively investigate uh, the business model assumptions and see how the technology can effectively undermine those assumptions and then what does that mean for for the business. And enterprise Ethereum, uh, well, that was probably the my moment in shanghai uh, i remember your moment in shanghai that, that <laughs> could
0: mean a lot of things Alex. Do tell.
2: <laughs> it means only one one thing though uh, i ended up being in a very energetic place with some brilliant people and i looked at the room and being the banker that i am i looked at how much i would have to pay each one of those individuals in order to push the ethereum protocol forward and i calculated that you're probably looking at two to three hundred million burn uh, with those amazing individuals in the room and i said uh, that ethereum is probably something to watch out for there are great other protocols like Corda by three and Hyperledger, but to dismiss uh, this movement would be nonsensical but of course enterprise has a different atmosphere and it's not oxygen, it's nitrogen. You need to make sure that um, you look for permission chains, not because I'm against permissionless. None. I actually think those are amazing solutions. It's just in a regulator market, I have to know who I'm dealing with. That's just regulation. So there's no point in me burning hash rate to uh, protect against attack because I actually just need to know who I'm dealing with. And that's EEA. That's EA that's really trying to say, what is the delta between the public and private? uh, And we need to standardize and and, uh, kind of allow enterprises to take advantage of this. So that's super interesting.
0: You see all of this talent that is working with this thing called Ethereum. And Ethereum we've talked about a number of times on this show, so regular listeners will be familiar. But this is an open source project, which is doing open source blockchain stuff, uh, which a lot of, uh, I think, corporates looked at. And to Jack's point earlier said, hmm, but there are some problems Problems with this, and you recognize some of those same problems, but you also recognize that there was an awful lot of talent there. There's an awful lot of really smart minds looking at this thing, and you couldn't dismiss it. I think that's super interesting, uh, Jack. You you had some some thoughts.
1: Yeah, so I I remember w- when you were still at UBS. I remember going along to the demo at level was it level 42 where, where your lab is of the Bond Coin um, platforms. You, the, when was that? That was like 2015 or something, wasn't it? It was yeah, in pretty early days. So kinda. you 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 kind of I, you know, spotted Ethereum very very early on.
2: Yeah, there's two couple of things, and, and actually, whilst a lot of people do obsess with privacy, there is a whole class of transactions which are public um, that we do need, so reference data and so on. So I think there are there's a whole class of solutions that we can start adopting. Something like Ethereum for immediately because if if you're trying to do corporate actions, if you're trying to do uh, reference data uh, reference data leis and I blogged about it on LinkedIn, um, then actually it's it's ready to go. There's no reason not to do that. Of course, there's another class of transactions where pseudonymity isn't good enough, um, especially when we've seen coinalytics and Elliptic doing some amazing stuff, and Zcash becomes really interesting. So I want to take a
0: couple of steps back because. You guys, as ever, as you would expect when you get some experts in the room, just went straight to 11. And we like that. You know, I'm wearing a T-shirt that says 11FS. I'm all for that. Colin, can you unpick for me why this is important?
3: Yeah, so there's a couple of things in there. Um, A lot of people, when they first start hearing about blockchain, they hear the word encryption. And they assume that means, all right, we've got cryptography and everything's hidden. Um, The reality about blockchains is quite the opposite. Everybody can see everything. Now, there's been... Eek, yes. Um, when, when you're a trader um, and you're putting out your information to the market about what you bought and what you've sold, that's a really dangerous idea. Um, and that can potentially lose banks a lot of money or individual traders. Um, some of the new improvements and things like what Zcash has done and some of the other ideas out there have tried to hide some of that information from the market. And some of that's gone through this new um, cryptography, which we won't get into, uh, unless you want to talk about that later, <laughs> um, or segmenting some of the data, which is a, a bit of where um, some of the ideas in EEA has gone, um, but it's it's definitely not the only one. There are still a lot of things which which Alex brought up, which we can happily put everything out in the world if we can protect it in some way, shape, or form. Now, um, pseudonymity, I can never pronounce the word. There, thank you very much. Um, Basically, just good. I I should. Um, Basically, just means you don't attach your name to it, and that's how Bitcoin works. And that's great if you're trying to, you know, hide behind your your VPN, um, your virtual private network, and not tell anybody who you are as a small guy trading $1,000. It's not so great when you're a bank trading a billion.
0: So what's going on here? Are we seeing then that uh, we've got this explosion at the moment? It started with Bitcoin, but now we've kind of got all of this other stuff going on. We've got Enterprise Ethereum Alliance and we've got Zcash and we've got Corda from R3 and we've got Hyperledger and we've got Digital Asset. There's lots of different ideas here. We're in this expansion phase. Jack, you put out a tweet storm, I think, a couple uh, last week from the Consensus Conference and, and kind of compared it to the Internet in 96 what similarities are you seeing there and if i'm sitting in a bank as a senior executive or if i'm just somebody working in fintech why should i be paying attention
1: um i think i think the key the key similarities with the dot com boom are that we've got an emergence of a new technology and whenever you have a new technology that's got a lot of potential there's a, a period of irrational exuberance so we're seeing that and you can think of the space as being bifurcated into two two areas. There's the retail space, for want of a better description, which is represented by the price of Bitcoin and all these ICOs coming out and and all the all the speculative excitement around those the digital assets. And then you've got the enterprise angle, which is what the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance and R3 and Digital Asset are about, big companies looking at. Um, this new technology and, and figuring out how they can exploit it. Now, when I, you know, I, I, I mentioned earlier that you know I began my career in the dot com boom, and then after it burst, I went to work in, in 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 the city. Now, what was interesting there was the large enterprises like the Deutsches and the Morgan Stanleys and, and so on. They waited until the technology was a little bit more mature, and then they stepped in and started using it when it when it was ready, when it was. Um, stable when it was secure, you know after SSL had been had been invented and all this sort of stuff. What we're seeing, I think right now with blockchain and distributed ledger technology is a faster cycle of development and innovation. And for some reason, I think uh, particularly the banks but also other other enterprises have cottoned on that that, that this is potentially disruptive or you know can potentially give them, significant cost savings and therefore they're getting in at an earlier stage so for example getting in and experimenting with ethereum even though you know that it's not yet ready with the necessary privacy and, and confidentiality provisions you know, to support all the use cases it doesn't mean you can't experiment with it a little bit it's you know you get to learn something you get to figure out you know which pieces work which pieces don't work and, and where there there are requirements that 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 now need to be fulfilled
0: So we've seen a lot of banks experiment in the last couple of years. And we've seen a lot of people in a lot of industries experiment. We've seen the energy markets. We've seen transport. We've seen just every market you can think of. Uh, We even saw Spotify buying a media chain, was it? So it's not just the, the kind of the incumbent industries doing something by themselves anymore. It's really sort of spread out a little bit. But if it's just experimentation and it's still early, what could we be learning right now? And is there a risk of being left behind, Colin? What should you be doing? I
3: think there's absolutely a a risk of being left behind. If you're not paying attention, if you're a big company that deals with lots of transactions, um, and I use transactions as a very loose term. Um, this changes a lot of things. It's potentially very interesting. Are you going to get a return tomorrow? Probably not. Um, is it in its final state? Probably not. It was interesting. You were talking about it being like the internet in 96. I'd argue this is more ARPANET. We don't know what the end is going to look like. It may be the internet or it may be something completely different. And we're changing a lot of things. As things like Zcash come out, we hear about Tezos and and other new upstarts come out to try to change the way these protocols work. It could look vastly different. But I think one thing that's really come out of this is we want to be able to create solid transaction records inside of a decentralized uh, world.
1: I, th- I think in terms of the technology maturity, you know, the comparison with ARPANET is right. But what I would say is that when it was just ARPANET before, you know, the web had come along and so on, there wasn't the same level of interest that A, the internet attracted in the late 90s, and B, both cryptocurrencies and blockchain and DLT are attracting right now.
3: But is is that um, simply because there was less um, ability to plug into that, that was done through big universities in the US and the government, and now we have this thing where you can go buy Bitcoin's, which collectively all the cryptocurrencies, were more than 100 billion dollars now, and it's so easy to plug into it.
1: That, that that that's definitely a factor. I mean, the the permissionless nature of what's going on here is 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 really interesting. Like, the the financial sector, you know, is one of the most heavily regulated spaces. You know, having digital currency emerge and allow people to start. Experimenting and building exchanges. I mean, obviously the regulation is not catching up, and I, th- I suspect we'll 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 talk about regulation later. But certainly the the permissionless innovation nature of it has been, a, I think, a key accelerant.
2: I mean, the other thing you talk about, for instance, is is kind of being here too late to the game. Uh, let's take Ethereum Foundation for instance. Uh, I can't remember the exact percentage of Ether they have, but I suspect they're probably worth a couple hundred uh, million now. If we reach Bitcoin level, uh, it's going to be like a couple of billion funded organization. So imagine they're starting to build out effectively alternative rails. They don't use fiat cash. They don't use normal securities. They're effectively showing in a different uh, capital markets uh, model. So if somebody then wanted to flex their muscle a little bit later and buy them out, well, you'd have to have a 1 billion to buy them out. If you look at margins that most of the financial services now operate under uh, with all the squeezes and stuff, actually very few can probably afford to buy them. So you need to really follow the money and understand that uh, kind of you might not be able to afford to flex the muscle in the near future because this guys has just growing way out of uh, your ability to purchase them.
0: We're in this super interesting stage where there's high fixed cost for being an incumbent financial institution. And that high fixed cost you sit on is where all your revenue comes from. So you're kind of locked into that and looking for ways to evolve out of it. And the the things we've seen, uh, the likes of uh, everything from Corda to Hyperledger have really started to try and help people evolve out of that space. Uh, and then you see stuff in the open source space which is really leaping ahead. And a lot of financial institutions look at that and go, there are a whole bunch of reasons why I can't do that regulation being one of them, fixed infrastructure being another, and just the way in which they're they're kind of operating and the people they have uh, and the knowledge gaps that they might have. Jeremy Miller on the uh, last show we did uh, talked a little bit about how we're seeing convergence. Jeremy Miller from consensus, the, the, the organization. Um, seeing that the private blockchain space that we see with Corda and Hyperledger is starting to really help banks and financial institutions out of their cage of fixed infrastructure towards shared infrastructure. And we're seeing in the open source space that they're with enterprise Ethereum Alliance and with others, they're walking towards helping people inside that firewall. And in the internet world, we have people uh, that operate in the public internet and have people that operate behind a firewall. Are we starting to see that really come into uh, this market now? Are we seeing convergence or are we too early for that?
1: I think I think the the banks are actually quite used to operating with new models, they embraced electronic trading. They embraced screen screen-based trading in the '90s. They embraced uh, e-trading towards the end of the the dot-com boom. You had companies like Market Access and TradeWeb emerged. So I think they're quite used to embracing new types of technology. And if if you look at you know look at the work that J.P. Morgan is doing, they're they're forging ahead. They're they're not waiting for. Say Ethereum to build in those enterprise features that they need in order to 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 use that code base for their use cases. They're they're, they're pushing ahead. So I think I don't think that the incumbent banks are as helpless as 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 as, as you maybe you know p- p- portrayed them there. I think some of them will be followers, but I think some of them are like right. This is interesting technology. Let's start using it, you know, let's experiment with it even before it's a uh, it it's ready for 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 the full enterprise you know, use case, and they're starting to push forward. And I, and I think you know the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance is part of that.
0: That's super interesting. I see a, a difference though between uh, the US banks that are poised for growth in their investment banking division and European banks that are struggling for growth in their investment banking division and actually looking at, at shrinking. Uh, and European banks that are looking at shrinking are probably looking at how do I cut my costs and how do I meet regulation? And anything that enables them to do that, they're looking at. So it's it's how do I take out the cost of middle and back office. It's how do I make my operations more efficient? If I'm in a US bank like JP Morgan or Goldman or somebody like that, I'm thinking more about revenue. So I think there's there's a different uh, tack there. Uh, I wanted to uh, take a a slight change of tack and talk about something that uh, our good friend Vinay Gupta talks about. Uh, Vinay talks about the three stages of the internet. So the first stage of the internet being the internet of information. So you get kind of people with web pages and people with bits of data here, there and everywhere. And the second phase being the internet of commerce. People can buy things, so there's a lot of advertising. Advertising becomes the revenue model and buying things becomes super important. So you see Amazon bit really, really stepping up and e-commerce becoming a massive, massive industry. And he talks about the third stage of the internet being the internet of agreements. The internet of every other type of contract. If, if this is a mortgage, if this is uh, any contract you can think of in financial markets, any contract you can think of in business. And, and I think that's a really helpful message mechanism for us to start to think about how this thing fits in at at a really high level. But really, one thing I keep hearing about from uh, the executives that I talk to in this space is, but isn't this just a solution looking for a problem? Uh, What problems can you solve with blockchain technology or or DLT or
2: whatever you want to call it right here, right now, today, Alex? (laughs) Well, if I had the answer to that, uh, <laughs> uh, I'd probably be very rich. Uh, anyway, but uh, I think actually I have a slightly different mental model. I'm to, I, I'm thinking of the disintermediation of the human, because if you think about previous, you know, we took paper and we digitized it in its email, and you send the email, you see it in the inbox, but still the human that has to read that email and do something with it. Once you move towards structured data and actually kind of structured agreement and code, what does blockchain do? It actually virtualizes the fiduciary actions of a um, trusted third party. So we just virtualized a human being that pr- produced kind of a certain output. Then you look at artificial intelligence. What's artificial intelligence? Well, it's taking a human that makes usually kind of normal decisions day in, day out, and replacing by AI. So by automating the supply chain, and blockchain is actually doing that because we're turning everything into an API. And until you have an API, artificial intelligence can only advise a human to uh, execute, not actually execute. But once everything is an API and all those post-trade and trade functions are now accessible by machines, basically machines take over for business as usual and humans are there to assist with extraordinary circumstances.
1: I think there are actually a bunch of use cases. That are ready at the right now to exploit blockchain, distributed ledger technology, and where the only uh, major hurdle that remains is getting the regulatory approval. If you, if you think about how financial markets work, but I'm speaking now specifically about capital markets. I'm speaking about the investment banking divisions and and you know the zero sum game of trading between the J.P. Morgans and the Morgan Stanleys and the and the Goldman Sachs and so on. It's very competitive. Um, driving down costs and, and and finding an edge is is what these guys do. And they do it far more aggressively than the retail and commercial banking operations do. So if you look at, the, at those markets, you've got centralized trading venues like exchanges and swap execution facilities and multilateral trading facilities where you have a, a centralized trusted third party who extracts rent from the liquidity that their venue provides when that liquidity is actually provided by all the participants. So people like the JP Morgans and the Goldman Sachs and so on, they're adding value to these venues by trading on them, and then they're being charged to trade on them. Now you look at blockchain, you look at the total decentralization, the removal of these trusted third parties. I think that that's why they're so interested in this technology. They're looking at and they're they're, they're thinking to themselves, this might allow us to remove a set of middlemen a layer of economic rent from our market, from our operations. And that I think is where you're gonna really see the the most aggressive adoption of, 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 of this technology. Like I said, there are hurdles. One of the key hurdles is that in order for it to work, you need to effectively tokenize or digitize the assets that you're trading and the dollars or euros or the pounds that you're using to pay for them. But I, you know, like here here in the EU, we have the electronic money. Regulations. Um, I suspect that uh, in the U.S., the you know the the Federal Reserve are looking closely at this stuff. They had people at consensus the other week. Um, so I I think we're 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 going to move. You know, it, it's not necessarily going to be overnight, but there's certainly a a movement towards that end goal.
3: You said something really interesting there. I want to pick up on Jack. So if we if we kind of break down how trading works and how the capital markets work, there's kind of three main functions. The first is raising money, uh, getting money from other people to put into a common uh, enterprise or a common cause, I guess we could use in this market. Like ICOs. Like an ICO. <laughs> um, th- the second one is, is really finding somebody else to buy that in a secondary market. And the, the third, I would say, is kind of everything else attached to that. Who owns it? Um, how do you process all those transactions? My, my issue is with that middle one. Um, you you talked about um, exchanges in particular. High frequency trading is a reality. We've spent billions and billions of dollars in the banking industry and hedge funds make so much money out of this. One of the reasons they can do that is because they know w- how far they are from the execution. And it's all about ordering. And if we move that into a blockchain or DLT, we don't know when when things are going to execute. So we can't get through this thing that's part of regulation called best execution, because I have to send a message simultaneously from London, where we're sitting now, to Sydney, Australia, maybe also to Los Angeles, maybe to Reykjavik, Iceland, maybe to South Africa. Um, I don't know where it's going to execute. So if I can find a way to go outside of this network and make myself visible in all of those places, I will always beat you, which means if I have more money, I will always make money off of you. I see that happening in a centralized exchange. I still see the first and maybe the third thing potentially happening inside of a blockchain. So issuing to raise money like an ICO uh, or maybe a more formalized um, debt offering or equity offering and doing post-trade processes where we're talking about T plus two and maybe moving that up to T plus a couple of hours. Jogging alert. I'm going
0: to try and pick some of that or ask you guys to, because the, the we got into a, a whole bunch of stuff there and, and i think i've seen uh, this argument of centralization versus decentralization cutting out middlemen uh, as, as almost this binary argument it, we're either cutting out middlemen or we're not we're having a tech upgrade for the existing middlemen or we're getting rid of the middlemen and I think what Colin's kind of saying is the reality is probably somewhere between the two, that we do see the existing middlemen upgrading their infrastructure to a certain degree, and we do see some, some things that they do today that they no longer do. Uh, the argument that some exchanges make, and some CSDs especially, um, centralized securities depositories. Is that look if if their balance sheet isn't what holds the liquidity, in other words, um, you know, their role kind of starts to disappear. Then what you'd get is a, a market in which your counterparty risk and your liquidity that you have to hold as a bank. In other words, if I'm going to trade with Colin, I have to know that he's solvent and he has to know that I'm solvent. So we both have to hold on to a certain amount of money. If there's a middleman that holds on to that money for all of us, then we potentially have to hold on to a lot less money in case Colin's insolvent or in case I'm insolvent. So in other words, I can trade a lot more with a lot less money because there's a middleman that's taking the risk. And we all spread that risk around the entire market. So if something does go wrong, it's a lot lot less likely. But if something does go wrong, it would be more catastrophic. But it's a lot, lot less likely. So ultimately, banks aren't going to want to trade less. And I don't know that there's really been a lot of good examples of how you move away from that idea that uh, the the value brought by a centralized entity is really, really there, uh, unless you find some other way of replacing what that centralized entity does. So it's finding those middle ground answers, to me, which is starting to get really interesting, because I I think early on when R3 was started, the whole idea was, let's get rid of all the exchanges and middlemen. And the reality we're finding ourselves is, Let's try and upgrade the market so that we're as efficient as possible. Does anybody violently disagree with that sentiment?
2: Not really, but I actually would challenge the the premise that uh, regulation uh, and somehow blockchain go hand in hand. They don't regulation never, never prescribes technology. Blockchain ultimately is a technology play. So for instance, if a CSD, the securities depository, uh, and a custodian, both global and local custodian, chose to implement their solutions on blockchain, they could do it today with zero regulatory change. What we're talking about, uh, is that kind uh, of if you want to have a non-regulated entrant creating smart contracts that effectively impact the various life cycles that are associated with the, the securities depository global custodian then of course they wouldn't be allowed to do that you could write it but you shouldn't be using it the perfect example would be a, a stock exchange would not allow a smart contract written by a non-regulated entity but if it's a regulated entity, they could. So I think we need to unpick this idea that somehow regulation is preventing blockchain. Uh, What it's preventing is non-regulated entities uh, effectively creating smart contracts on blockchain.
0: Interesting. So we see this open source space where people are creating contracts that look a lot like existing financial agreements, uh, that are sitting outside regulation, that some people say is is heading towards uh, kind of a, a train wreck, and that others say is, is kind of uh, just just innovation and you need to get with the times, man. With all these things, the reality is somewhere in the middle. But where do you stand on kind of opportunity cost versus um, cost takeout? I mean, Colin, do you think if if you're sitting in a financial institution, you're thinking more about opportunity cost and the ability to potentially create new revenues here? Or are you thinking more about um, cost takeout um, and and just efficiencies?
3: Yeah, I think that's a really good question. Um, a lot of people we've spoken to, that we've talked to about blockchain, um, have looked at this instinctively as how can I cut costs? Which is great um, because potentially it does cut costs. Um, if nothing else, you're automating a lot of things. Maybe you don't need a blockchain to do it, maybe you do blockchains require networks to work um and it's very hard to be the first mover in a network if all you're doing is saving costs because why would you do it now rather than after 15 other banks have signed up revenues is an interesting one and i think that there's a lot of opportunities that haven't been explored enough in this or sold to banks or anybody else that's potentially buying this says, because you sign up to a blockchain or you set up a blockchain now, you will make more money. And we talk about whether this evolution or revolution, evolution um, evolution's Darwinian. If you win that game, you're going to beat your competitors. Where are those opportunities and how do you talk to those?
0: interesting so um give me an example of something that somebody's done maybe uh micro bonds maybe some of the stuff that custodians have done just just something that could generate new revenue for a bank
3: yeah so micro bonds that you brought up is a really interesting thing so this is a project led out of france by the current president former um, minister of economics and innovation they're looking at how can i create a new bond offering as a corporate and offer this for very small sizes to retail individuals and bypass most of the normal checks and most of the normal things you need. They wrote these rules. And I know regulations are not um, prescriptive of technology, but they wrote these rules with DLT in mind. That's interesting. So. By a bond, we mean
0: company wants to raise debt. Other people want to buy that debt, which is a confusing concept in and of itself. But if but if I wanted to support a company and to see it grow, I could potentially help buy its debt um, as a retail customer in France. Uh, so you or me could,
3: could potentially buy a piece of their future growth. Exactly, which is not necessarily possible today with the traditional bond, where I might be able to buy part of a company through several layers of intermediaries as part of a fund. Um, And the other one that I'd like to just throw in there is if we kind of pull our our realms out of traditional banking and we look at venture capital as finance, ICOs. ICOs allow us as individuals to go say, I like the idea of Zcash. I'm happy to put in some money. I'm just going to buy some Bitcoins in dollars or in pounds and send it to this contract and boom, I have Zcash.
2: I think the other really interesting is the whole idea of decentralized business models because um, I think we talked about it earlier, the fact that... There are platform businesses which effectively extract rent from uh, the contributors, but they might even pay some folks in cash, but not in equity. So you might uh, get immediate return on uh, building on top of that platform, but you don't get an equity position with coins there is no equity or cash there's just the coin which is actually a highly exchangeable security Uh, and at that point therefore by being rewarded for your contribution to the decentralized uh, business model you're effectively getting an equity and cash upside so i think getting your head around that is really important and that That new business model where effectively contributors to the network get a reward, an equity reward, is something new and is really compelling. That new business model idea is something that old uh,
0: incumbents typically struggle with. The classic example is Kodak. Kodak were chemists they understood the razor blade business model. In other words, I sell a camera very, very cheaply and I sell lots of film. I sell the head of the shavers for a lot of expense, but I sell the, the, the kind of the underlying piece very, very cheaply. Uh, this is a business model that made sense to them. When the digital camera comes along, then they don't understand how they have the razor blade model. It doesn't make sense to them anymore. Uh, and what we've seen in the digital camera market is actually the individual unit price has gone up significantly. So new business models becomes a great way to take advantage of a new technology technology. And that that you talk about where you're getting new types of incentivization for developers, where you're getting new types of ways of moving money around. Fred Wilson famously talked about FAT protocols as a new business model. I think that's really interesting.
1: Funny thing is that Kodak actually, in conjunction with Nikon, created the first, you know, significant digital camera, you know, so they they were actually at the forefront of that technological innovation. And then they let it completely. Bypass. Well, so they did have
0: a separate business unit that they were ready to float, uh, and they decided not to, which is kind of interesting to me. That they were on the precipice, like a lot of organizations, they didn't struggle to innovate internally; they struggled to commercialize externally because they knew their existing business model, which is interesting uh, to say the least.
1: To have to 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 innovate effectively, an incumbent needs to be prepared to cannibalize their existing business model and their existing revenues. They have to be prepared to say, right, we're going to introduce this digital camera. You know, In the long term, it's going to hit the, uh, our, our, our film sales because people won't need film anymore. If, if you recognize that if you don't do it, somebody else is going to do it and eat your lunch, then you're in a far better position than trying to deny reality and just waiting until somebody else puts you out of business.
2: And interesting Amazon did just that with books. You know, they pretty much cornered the market on physical delivery of books. Yet they brought out Kindle, which clearly was going to compete with itself. But they figured out that it's best to do it themselves rather than anybody else to do that to them. So fascinating. You do see evidence that people can do that if they choose to.
1: Yeah. It'll, it'll be interesting to see how this evolves in the financial space. You know, it, in in some respects, it's difficult for us to imagine because. We've all worked in it, we've all had experience of it, and, and in many respects, the people who have experience in a sector are the people who are least well positioned to understand how things can be done differently and how it can be disrupted. You know
3: too much. I, I think it's quite funny that we talk about that as four ex-bankers sitting around a table here.
2: Yeah. <laughs> it, it is. Dude, have I just been sacked or something?
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: Do you know something I don't know?
0: Three ex-bankers and the least likely banker in the world, Alex Batlin. Uh All right, on that bombshell, uh, let's throw to our sponsors. The Financial Times guides you through complex issues.
1: In divisive times, don't settle for black and white. When you need the full perspective, turn to FT.com. Become a subscriber today. Search for FT subscription.
3: Critical mass—that's
0: what turns the smallest ventures into life-changing forces. Reach critical mass by joining Temenos Open Marketplace for fintechs, opening up access to 2,000 of the world's largest financial institutions. Don't just take our word for it. Temenos Marketplace has just won Reader's Choice. Best Emerging Innovative Technology Product and Service at the 2016 Banking Technology Awards. Join Temenos
1: us now. We make the money go round.
2: Let's be honest. Most digital banking experiences just aren't that amazing. Learn how more than 180 banks worldwide, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank, and BBVA, innovate faster with Strands as their trusted fintech partner. To find out more, visit strands.com today.
0: Alright, thank you very much to our sponsors. Uh, Now time to cover some news and stories this week. First one up here, Colin, is one in Coindesk and uh, this is the EU committing 5 million euros to blockchain research. Now, the, the EU, um, the ECB came out recently and said, we're not going to regulate this stuff. And now they're committing t- some money to research. There's a lot of talk of regulators and governments really hating blockchain. But is that really the case? What, what's going on here?
3: Yeah. Um, I mean, this is this is really interesting. Um, the EU obviously manages the largest economy on the planet. Um, they are looking at this from a surveillance point of view, which is if you're in this for like the crypto anarchy, maybe a bit scary um we talked about earlier about how everything that goes into blockchain becomes public unless it's on zcash what i find very interesting is this really kind of seemed like it was sparked by all the ransomware that came out last month um oh okay so ransomware being this attack that hit the nhs that
0: hit and the, hit the nhs of, amongst um, others lots of uh, companies in the us and around the world
3: were hit by a ransom attack and bitcoin was the way you had to pay to to get your computers to work again. Precisely, which means once you pay in Bitcoin, there's this permanent record of where the money moves. And if you pull money out of that account, I think they'd really like to understand, is this something they can trace? Is this something they can use to their advantage? Because I I don't know that the EU really wants to regulate Bitcoin per se or any other cryptocurrency. They want to understand it and know how they can use it to their advantage. So I remember when I worked at at Barclays a couple of years ago, we looked at um, Chainalysis
0: and Skull and all of these companies out there that worked uh with the silk road um so some of you may remember uh, not worked with silk road but helped the fbi and others capture the guys behind silk road silk road was an online marketplace in which you could buy drugs but you paid for those drugs with bitcoin and other illicit goods and you they eventually
2: buy toilet paper
0: as well i believe so it wasn't just drugs <laughs> well it's like open but yeah you could buy just about anything off it uh with stuffed rats the interesting thing about this was that you could trace every transaction on bitcoin and when somebody came along with a tool that allowed you to see all of the hops uh, on the bitcoin network they went huh that's interesting maybe it's really really easy to catch people compared to the existing financial system where it's really 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 fucking hard so uh, there's definitely something here about uh, a change a change but then you've got zcash coming along where now it's really going to be anonymous so are you
1: guys just making it easier for drug dealers or what we're doing is we're enabling compliance with regulations that require privacy of personal financial information. Right. So <laughs> I'm going to go short all my Zcash. So, right yeah. now. <laughs> so, if you look at so in the U.S., there's a law called the Gram-Leach-Bliley Act. That's a and great name. Can we say that again? Gram-Leach-Bliley. Say it backwards. No, and every I'm just time, every time I type it, it, it autocorrects Bliley to Bailey, which is quite irritating. Um, but. The, and, and that law mandates privacy of personal financial information. Here in the EU, we have the... Uh, we, we, GDPR. We have the, yeah, GDPR is coming up. That General mandates... Based protection regulation. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> that, that mandates privacy of, of, of personal information, including financial information. So there are all these laws that require that personal uh, and especially financial information is kept private. And at the moment, or, or until we came along with Zcash that wasn't possible. Can I can I take
3: a step back on this? I, I think it's very interesting. In an age where all of our other personal data is becoming more open and more public online, I mean, Facebook, Twitter, how much junk do we put out there that wouldn't have been out there 20 years ago? Do you think it's possible that with cryptocurrencies, we could just put all our financial information out there for the world to see?
1: Well, you could. I mean, I, I, I certainly don't want to. I don't want people to know, you know, the, the how, how much I'm being paid, or you know, where I'm spending my money, what 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 uh, podcasts I subscribe to, or or what magazines I subscribe to, or websites, you know. So, quick question, actually, and I think a lot of
2: people misunderstand zero knowledge proofs and uh, Zcash, because it's not but about Zcash, com- not Zcash. Oh, that, Z-cash. That's brought to you what, right oh, yeah. here. <laughs> because what you're doing there is actually creating a logic circuit that promises the only way you can create a proof is by following a set of rules you might not know what the data is under the hood but you know that it should have been correctly processed which means that i can for instance do transactions prove that all the kyc aml checks were done without revealing the extra actual data they're complex proofs but nonetheless possible so i think we shouldn't think about Zcash as somehow deliberately trying to avert uh, kind of investigation. Actually, we're going to get the best of both worlds, both privacy at the same time guaranteed compliance.
0: Okay, now that's interesting. So it's really allowing us to only see a transaction when something's gone wrong and the rest of the time give you privacy. So is this what Theresa May is really looking for?
1: No I think I think Theresa May is looking for a, for a blanket backdoor into into everything. Theresa May fundamentally doesn't understand technology. And uh, th- th- there's this really interesting thing that you know so I've I've advised the cabinet office on on digital currencies. I've also spent a lot of time as an external advisor to the MOD on 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 cybersecurity. And It's really interesting what happens in the public sector when you have something like cyber, quote unquote, uh, emerge. People jump on it as an opportunity to build their own private empire, to get more budget, to hire more people, to get a promotion, you know. And that's, I think, what has happened in, in many cases. And sometimes the people who are advising the policymakers are not necessarily the most independent or. Necessarily, the the most competent in terms of their technical understanding, you know, the 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 suggestion that 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 we can backdoor cryptography so they can only be 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 read by by the good guys is is a fundamentally wrong understanding. So, no, I think I think um, I think what Theresa May is is asking for is is effectively impossible, and if she got it, it would lead to. Pretty much the destruction of the UK technology industry. So we and need to
0: understand zero knowledge proofs better, I think, as a country, because actually, what we're hoping for is an ability to see something if something's gone wrong, which I think everybody would understand. But have privacy if nothing's gone wrong, and I think everybody would would want that. and And it seems to me like Zcash
1: is is starting to deliver on that promise. Is, is that fair? So, so Zcash enables privacy, um, or zero knowledge proofs, as implemented in Zcash, enable privacy. You know, Alex is totally right. You can the the concept of a zero-knowledge proof is that you can prove something without having to reveal all, all the details.
0: So this is like the answer, that the, the classic metaphor is, uh, there was a story about a group of children that were walking into a library in New York and they were getting very, very upset because they were reading the Wes Waldo or Wally books and couldn't find Wally or Waldo, depending on where you are in the world. And they were crying and the, the library was getting into a lot of trouble. And so what the library did is it instituted an ability to prove that there was Waldo slash Wally in this book uh, without necessarily revealing where Waldo slash Wally was. It was basically a proof that Waldo or, or Wally was really in this book, so that kids wouldn't be crying and that parents would still come to the library. To me, I think of that as a metaphor for how a zero-knowledge proof works. I don't know where Wally is, but I know he's there. Is that a fair example?
1: I've never heard that, that analogy before, but uh, yeah, it could be. It could be used. And um, the, the, the one I, I prefer to use is um, is, is you know, proving that the inputs equal the outputs from a transaction. So you know with with Bitcoin that's really easy to prove because they're revealed. You can see how many bitcoins are going in and you can see how many bitcoins are coming out. With Zcash with a shielded transaction, you can't see that. So you have to have some other way of proving that, and that's what the zero knowledge proof enables you to do.
2: I, I'm much more based than that. I want to be able to go to the pub and prove that I'm over 21 without necessarily telling everybody exactly how old I am. And zero knowledge proofs allows you to do just that. I can prove I'm
1: over 21, but not reveal my age. Or to prove that you've been KYC'd by an appropriate organization. Or you know, there, 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 there's a huge amount of, of potential for this technology. Zcash is a is, is a first, you know, tiny implementation of it. But you know, I, I think in the future we're going to see a lot more uh, use cases for it.
3: Can I just say as an American, I love that we're sitting in London talking about Z, privacy, Waldo, and uh, going through this whole thing talking about 21 as being the legal drinking age. Just throw that in there, zero value add. (laughs) Screw you, Colin.
0: (laughs) Stupid, like, colonial Americans with your worldview. Cultural appropriation. Yeah, everything, all of the above. Make America Great Britain again. (laughs) (laughs) Hell yeah, I'm all for that. Uh, But we've got to move on. Uh, There's a story here about a company called Ripple testing a transaction across seven different ledgers. Um, Alex, what does that even mean? Are you familiar with this story?
2: I am, yes. And uh, it's all about what's called Interledger Protocol that Ripple are uh, sponsoring. There are others who work on... Why does Interledger Protocol sound like a movie? Is that just me? (laughs) (laughs) It's just you. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I mean, I guess... uh, I'm a firm believer that, a bit like we have internal uh, intranets and we have the internet, there will be different chains simply because, um, as I said, there's just oxygen and nitrogen atmospheres, and depending on whether you're regulated or unregulated, you're already going to have different scenarios. For instance, you know, Intel's done a really exciting bit of research, and they looked at proof of lapse time. This. First past the gate post scales very well above two hundred, but PBFT, uh, which is a simple voting mechanism, for instance, only scales up to two hundred participants. So there will be different uh, use cases for different constituents, and therefore you're going to have multiple ledgers. And if you're going to have multiple ledgers, you better. Be able to transfer value between those the key premise is that each ledger supports what's called cryptographic escrow so the idea is effectively on two sides you can escrow the money and the two chains talk to each other and transfer that so pretty exciting concept sure. and i think well required
0: So, Colin, when we're talking about uh, a story here from Ripple about uh, Interledger and seven different ledgers and the ability to move money across different ledgers, what's happening in the story? Coindesk talk about it as being the ability to move money from Ethereum to Bitcoin to Zcash to something else. Is
3: anybody going to use that? Or is this a genuine breakthrough? Personally, I think that this is the most valuable thing that Ripple has ever done. I am not overly fascinated with the idea of Ripple the original moving euros and dollars over their decentralized ledger. What I do think is really interesting is that there's a lot of other assets out there that are much bigger than Ripple, like Ethereum and Bitcoin. And much like when I have pounds or dollars or euros, I might one day want something else like a yen. Um, And this is a, a good way that I can move that without needing to necessarily rely on this huge mechanism to make sure that when I had dollars, now I have yen. This is a very seamless technology Uh, to move it across and I think that's extremely powerful is ripples the best I don't know but is that something that we're going to need in the world And I think Alex is is very clear that's absolutely something we're going to need especially moving out of the cryptocurrency space what happens when four or five banks need to use one network between them and then for whatever reason they need to talk to banks in Asia or banks in the US how are they going to move money across I think that's huge and if they can get this done in an efficient way that's that's brings us not from the little blockchains, which really look like big open internets, to an actual internet of blockchains. So that's an interesting idea. We used to have networks,
0: and then we had an internet, which was a network of networks. And the way we connected all of those networks together was with a set of protocols, uh, and that set of protocols became known as TCP/IP. Um, really, Interledger is really trying to trying to be that. Then,
1: yeah, it's it's, it's all about interoperability. It's all about you know if if I've you know if i've got some some ether and i and i want to buy uh, some zcash do i and we're back now to disintermediation you know do you go through a centralized trusted third party in exchange to make that happen or do you create a hash time locked contract on on both sides of the network which end up with you with you swapping you know, exchanging the Zcash for for the ether.
0: Wow, you lost me. Hash time locked contract again. Sounds like a movie. I'm sorry, it does.
3: It, <laughs> that is a movie. So that's that's when we lock money in one ledger and then boom,
1: it appears in the other one, right? So so it's 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 what Alex referred to with the the cryptographic escrow. I take my Zcash. Cryptographic escrow. There's just so much <laughs> jargon here, man. What? <laughs> I take I take my Zcash and I and I lock it using a hash function. And the only way to unlock it is if you reveal the pre-image of the hash. And then the other person locks their ether using the sh- using the same hash. And then I reveal my hash pre-image to receive that ether. And in revealing my hash pre-image, they get to There's a lot of geeks <laughs> very happy right now.
3: But hold on, back up, back up. I'm in, I'm in London. I'm traveling to Spain this weekend. I want euros. Somebody is in Spain. They're traveling to London. We find each other somehow, yep. and this guy tells me, look, I've got a thousand euros, and I say, look, I've got whatever that is, 900 pounds, let's do a trade. We send some kind of image that proves that we have that amount of money. Yeah, We find a way to lock that in technology so that when we cross each other in the airport, we can hand that cash across and nobody gets screwed over during that time.
1: Yeah, except it doesn't have to happen physically. It, it, it happens electronically and it's cryptographically assured. You don't so have you to So you've got trust. maths making sure it's for real. Yeah, it's all about the math.
2: So once a lot of hash has passed through, then you get some sort of uh, value transfer. No, we're not talking about that sort of hash.
1: <laughs> we're not going to Morocco.
3: <laughs> we're going to Spain.
0: <laughs> uh, I like that. I got to move us on to the next story. So the next story up is by the famous Fred Wilson of Union Square Ventures, who is a venture capitalist. And funnily enough, Colin, he's saying that initial coin offerings won't displace venture
3: capitalists. Hmm. Kill surprise. Yeah, yeah, so I I would look at this with uh, a pinch of salt. What is very interesting is, obviously, when VCs invest in a company, they invest... um, not only what's the value of their money, but what's the value of their time. And a lot of people have looked at this that have been in the blockchain space and become a bit jaded and said, well, maybe I can just go straight out to other people and create this new model that we talked about earlier with Alex of, um, can I create something new? And maybe I don't value the VCs as much. Will that take off completely? Well, I think there's some regulatory questions. I think there's some mentorship questions. Um, There's definitely values in both models. Um, And it's not to say that one will be Uh, the only model, but it's, it's a new option. It's quite interesting. I'm not sure if it's gonna be the only thing, though it is interesting it's a new thing.
0: Clayton Christensen the famous author of Disruptive uh, Innovation uh, talks about uh, disruptive innovation serves an underserved segment it serves a bunch of people that couldn't be looked after before and it comes in and takes the bottom of the market it doesn't ever go after the incumbents of the market but then it gradually grows and becomes dominant and and replaces what was there before it's interesting to me that the ICO market is really being used by people that aren't necessarily the people that would have gone for VC funding in the past or is it?
3: Uh, there's some that are doing both. Last week we talked about um, Kin, which is the cryptocurrency issued by the social media app Kick, which is funded, actually, I believe, by Fred Wilson's com- company as uh, VC, uh, amongst several other, as a way to issue an ICO after they've already received this VC funding. So it may be that they go together. Deeper down, there's a, there's a more fundamental thing here. We're talking about very weird niche technologies doing very weird niche things um, and we're going straight out to the people who might use them maybe they know better than the vcs i remember being in the the original ethereum um, development convention and all these vcs were laughing at ethereum because they said bitcoin is going to take over the world now they're out there talking about how ethereum is actually running the world
1: and, and the funny thing is that ethereum itself was funded through effectively an ico they they pre-sold ether you know for for bitcoins to to fund the development, to set up the foundation. And um and now look where, where it's at. You know, it's it's the second most valuable cryptocurrency after after Bitcoin. And all these, you know, enterprise Ethereum Alliance members are are, are suddenly using it. So I think that there definitely is a massive regulatory issue there. I I I fully expect at some point the the US regulators to stomp on it. Zcash raised the money the traditional way because of that Fear that it would be classified as a security, and and you know, Preston Byrne, you know, the famous marmot lover, he, uh, <laughs> he 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 has very strong opinions about 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 the legality of uh, of, of, of ICOs and, and and the classification of these as, as as securities. So
0: here we're talking about the option of, I can go to a venture capitalist, I'm running a small company, um, I'm going to. they're going to give me a lot of money, they're going to own some of my company in return, and they're going to expect me to make money. The alternative is, we're a bunch of developers, we're going to make up our own currency, we're going to call it a token so that it's not a currency, and it's going to do any number of things. It's either going to be, it's going to allow you access to use our service, potentially it's going to represent ownership in our service, um, but there's a lot of questions out there and a lot of unknowns, and there are some that are taking lots of advice from legal firms that are trying to make sure they're doing it by the book. And, and, and I know some uh, fairly um, established lawyers who are saying, yep, we're, we're helping out some some uh, ICOs and tokens at the moment. And then there are others saying this is something that you know we're never going to touch and there's definitely the Wild West out there. And Jack, earlier you mentioned it's like 1996 all over again um and i think one of the things you said in that tweet storm was that there are going to be big winners and big and lots more big losers and i wonder if we see that in this space and the regulator is a part of that
1: there's definitely going to be winners and losers you know we're going to have the amazons we're going to have the the pets.com you know we're going to have the googles we're we're going to have the altavistas I don't know what the what the percentage sort of numbers were of startups that got funded by at least a certain amount during the dot com boom, which ended up surviving or, or, or thriving. But you know, there's no doubt in my mind that you know when you go to CoinMarketCap.com and you see that list of cryptocurrencies and, and and tokens and and assets that have got you know multi-hundred million dollar capitalizations, a lot of them are not going to be there in five years' time. So, Colin, if I'm working in a bank or I'm a bank executive or even if we're
0: working fintech, is this just all some silly little bubble that I can ignore? I mean, a uh, friend of the show, Tim Swanson, sort of says that you know, this is all hubris and, and silly and nothing's going to
3: come of it. What, what are your thoughts? Uh, I think the truth is somewhere in between, as it always is, right? Um, uh, you mean there are shades of gray in the world? Uh, maybe. it well, <laughs> <laughs> depends on who you ask, right? <laughs> um, there's definitely some very good ideas out there that have found a way to in a very economically efficient way, use a cryptocurrency. Um, And there's a lot of people out there that have looked at this and said, wow, there is a lot of exuberance. And we talked about exuberance earlier, and they've capitalized on this. One of the ones, and I'm not trying to push at all because actually I don't own any anymore. Uh, Zcash I think has done a very good job on this. I'd I'd also argue Ethereum has done a very good job at this. Um, There's a lot of people out there that have come with ideas that are half-baked, raised valuations that are obscene on things that are not developed products, without clients, without business, and you go, why is it there? Um, My last week, my experiment has been looking at some of these altcoins or scam coins, I guess, um, and understanding what they are and and how the markets work. And there's a lot of people out there that get in these telegram groups, and they say, buy this, buy this, buy this, in the hopes that it'll go up and they'll make money because they've already bought. Um, But there's a lot of really legitimate projects out there that have said, we're frustrated with the old model. Let's disrupt the disruptors.
0: So, isn't the right thing to do if I'm an, a conservative institution just to sit back and let this all
1: unfold? Yeah, I, th- I you know I think so. There's no point in you know for a, a bank, for example, there's no point in plunging in and and and, and buying these tokens. Um, I think you know the people buying these tokens will often have a lot of Bitcoin or they'll have a lot of uh, of Ether, and they can't necessarily or they don't want to cash it all out into into fiat currency so so they're the ones I are that that, that is the source I think of, of a significant amount of this sort of investment that's going on
0: but, but what is about as an individual or as an entrepreneur should I be looking at this a bit differently is
3: there opportunity here I think there's absolutely opportunity um I'd also caution people that the price may have moved away from the fundamentals on a lot of these things and typically that's what defines a bubble cryptocurrencies collectively are worth over $100 billion. When I started looking at these, I I think it was just popping around about eight. Um, And that wasn't that long ago. Wow, it's happened fast. All right, so
0: last story of the day uh, is one from you here, Colin. Uh, There's a CSD consortium on DLT. So there's two TLAs there. Uh, If you can unpick what that means for me, I'd I'd much appreciate it.
3: Yeah, so, okay. Uh, What is a CSD? CSDs in short are the companies that exist solely to hold pieces of paper that refer to who owns what chunks of what company. Um, That can be in the form of a stock. Um, I own Apple shares, for example, or it could be a bond. I own, uh, we talked about Bonnie Mellon, uh, where Alex works, uh, a bond for five years issued by Bonnie Mellon. What they effectively do is a few different things. They tell everybody who owns them, Not directly, they say which bank owns it on behalf of somebody like Simon um, through a couple of different chains of intermediaries. And they also say, Bonnie Mellon, uh, you need to pay a 5% coupon on that $100 million you've issued out. You need to make sure you pay that every single quarter or every uh, semi-annually. What's really interesting about this is a lot of people have talked about central banks' involvement inside of DLT. I would argue this is much more important. Absolutely, it's early days, But if CSDs and other FMIs, Financial Markets Intermediaries, we love these acronyms, um, things like clearinghouses get involved, this is really what's going to make distributed ledger technology take off between big financial institutions. Because this is the
0: central middleman that they're already using, and if they figure out how to use it, then this is the kind of people that they've already outsourced to. But they've outsourced to not just one guy or girl or dog or cat or whatever; they've outsourced to a whole bunch of them, and actually, they don't talk to each other very well.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you if you look at if if, if you look at again, you know, to talking about companies like JP Morgan and, uh, and Morgan Stanley and so on, they have a track record of either embracing or setting up or investing in or, 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 or enabling trusted third parties who fulfill a role in the market in a kind of a coopetition style. so you've got companies like trade web market access you've got companies like market here here in London you know which which was set up to to effectively uh, aggregate market data for, for an underserved market. A bunch of the banks got together and set up turquoise, about ten years ago, as a competitor to the London Stock Exchange, because they were unhappy with the with the with the prices that the London Stock Exchange and then they bought was it. charging them, and then they <laughs> bought it. You know, so but in but 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 the the interesting thing is that if you look at the trading fees that were that were charged by the London Stock Exchange during the existence of Turquoise, they went down. So you can argue that that Turquoise fulfilled its objective, which was to. Reduce the costs for for it's it's, uh, its they, its they were they were
3: different but related markets
1: and that's that's probably deeper than we want to get into today
3: but I think competition is absolutely um, essential in this
1: yeah. and mm-hmm.
3: and DLT makes the price of becoming a competitor much lower
1: yeah and that's why what we were talking about earlier with uh, with Kodak the willingness to disrupt oneself or to be ready to to embrace the technology that might disrupt you. I think that's what we're seeing here with, you know, Nasdaq's recent uh, announcement with Chain, you know, and and this announcement, the CSDs are going, gosh, what happens if we you know if, if people start issuing their securities onto distributed ledgers instead of through us? You know, do we suddenly become completely irrelevant? Maybe we'd better have a look at this little technology segment and uh, and figure out what it's all about. So I think it's 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 about hedging their bets, making sure that they aren't left behind and, and abandoned in this brave new world. That's I interesting. That's, so if, I,
3: if I can just jump in on this, I, I think that that's critical and how banks look at how they can change a lot of these things. But really, fundamentally, I think the biggest change in what's gonna happen here is in the wealth management industry that's controlled by banks, these private banks, When the nouveau crypto rich come in because they've made millions of dollars on Bitcoin and Zcash and Ethereum and they start demanding more transparency. They say, I want to be able to invest through companies and I want you to take care of all of this regulatory stuff that I don't want to deal with. That's when it changes. That is a fantastic point. What happens when
0: all of these people that have made tens of millions, hundreds of millions in cryptocurrencies go to their bank and say, I want you to hold this for me because I can't hold it for myself anymore. I want you to start investing this for me in traditional ways, but I want to see that transparency. Super, super interesting idea, Colin. Uh, We're got to move it on. Um, I'm going to throw it up into any last thoughts. Where do we think the industry's at, Jack? Where are we at in this evolution? Where do we go next?
1: Well, you know, as, as Alex said earlier, if I could predict, uh, you know, where we're going next, then i'd i'd be a lot uh, i'd be a lot more wealthy than I am today, um, which is not very. Uh, I I think we're at that irrational exuberant stage. I think we're we're due a a correction. We're due a, a rationalization. I fear that it may turn out that the regulators have a have a have a role in triggering that you know particularly in this whole ico space but yeah there, there could be this interesting bifurcation between the sort of the retail cryptocurrency uh, end of 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 the industry and the and the enterprise end i honestly expected us you know this year to plunge into the the the, the kind of trough of disillusionment of the of the gartner hype cycle but it doesn't seem to have really happens you know there, there there does seem to be a little bit of 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 common sense taking over we're seeing less Marketing hype announcements emerging from the banks. We're seeing more code being being written, um, but you know, it, if 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 I could predict it, I you know I'd I would, but I think it's one of these things where it could keep going up for a while longer. Art could collapse tomorrow. We could, you know th- today could have been the peak of Bitcoin we don't you, know you
0: just don't know and, and i think that's interesting because it is exactly like the dot-com boom you don't know when it's going to unravel but actually even if it does unravel it doesn't mean that you should stop paying attention and it doesn't mean that it's not transformational so there's there's definitely something there uh, so so
3: what should i do colin well let, let me pick up on something before i answer that um we talked about is this the top and and things move around earlier in the podcast we were talking about crypto being over a hundred billion dollars it's, it's now just shed three billion dollars in the last 20 minutes half an hour that we've been recording this uh, things are going to move around a lot and honestly i think we're just one fuck up from losing uh, you know five, 50 75 billion dollars uh all, all bitcoin has to do is you know have a big glitch in it or ethereum for that matter and that could send lots of money tumbling and people could lose their shirts. And I think that's when regulators come in. I know we've heard uh, recently that the um, People's Bank of China, the central bank in China, has talked about potentially regulating ICOs. I think where this all goes is the technology is really interesting, not just because the prices go up and down on these things that are on top of it. That's fantastic if you used to work in a bank like us, um, or if you still work in a bank, Alex, like like some of us, um, to look at these things because it is a new asset. It is a new way to invest money. And it creates new opportunities. But I think fundamentally, uh, getting into the technology is much more enriching than just buying and selling cryptocurrency. If I may
0: editorialize ever so slightly, I think if you're in a bank and you're in R3, if you're in Hyperledger, if you're in the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance, lean into that. Lean in and learn more because these organizations I typically found had one, two, three, four, maybe five, maybe ten people really paying attention to what was going on. And actually, uh, whilst it may not be transformational right now, it's probably going to be transformational in the coming years. And if you're going to be in that company or that industry for more than six months, then you should really be paying attention.
3: Alrighty, so where can people learn more about what you do, Colin? Same place, still Twitter, Colin with one L, G Platt. Um, or you can find me on LinkedIn and all that other great stuff.
1: And uh, Jack, where can people find out more about you and Zcash? Um, for Zcash, really simple. Go to your browser, type in Z. Dot cash or dot Cash, if you uh, if you prefer that pronunciation i know
0: you've made uh, colin really unhappy and that that i truly appreciate deep down and alex had to step out so alex is at alex batlin b-a-t-l-i-n on twitter and uh, his blogs on linkedin are absolutely fantastic and i would no Z's would... or
3: z's though in his no no <laughs>
0: he's, he's staying out of that cultural appropriation Alrighty, um so a big thank you to our guests thank you as well for listening if you like what you heard subscribe to our podcast please Leave us a review on iTunes, tell your friends and colleagues, tell other people to listen, tell, go out into the street, tell the person next to you on the train. We have more Insight shows coming soon. And check out 11fs.com if you want to know more about the team who bring you this show every week. Goodbye.